Mark 15, if you will, and we're down in verse 33 and 34, and we're at the place where probably the most uh, critical point in human history uh, here, and uh, where we're going to now begin to focus in on the crucifixion, the cross of Christ, and uh, where he literally bears our sins, where he, he, his soul is made to travail. He's, the, he's an offering uh, for uh, the sin of humanity right here, verse 33 and 34 and 35. And uh, no other place in human history ever will match this event. Um, no, no, it, it, nothing that has ever happened in human history or will happen matches what's going to transpire here now um, on the cross. Uh, it takes the death and the resurrection to, to balance it all out. It takes the cross, the death, the burial, and the resurrection. And again, this is a very critical moment in God's uh, plan of redemption for humanity. And uh, verse 33, again, Mark uh, is going to deal with it straightforward. Uh, not a lot of extra here. And again, Mark, he just cuts right to, uh, to the point. Verse 33, And when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of them that stood by when they heard it said, Behold, he calleth Elias. Now, Elias is Elijah. And one ran and filled a sponge full of vinegar and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Let alone, let us see whether Elias will come to take him down. And, and again, there's, there's a picture here, a presentation of the cross, and that's it. The very next thing, verse 37, and Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. I mean, it's over. Now, the Lord talks, the Lord speaks seven times from the cross. This here where he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, is said here and in Matthew. Um, and that's it. Matthew's got a couple other places where he's going to say, John's got one couple, Luke's got one. But Mark just says this, and then he gives up the ghost, and he moves on. And it's a critically important to see Mark. And again, he's cutting right to the point. There's no, there's not, you know, it's in John, the Lord looks at Mary, and he looks at John, and he says, Behold your mother, mother, behold your son. And that, that moment, that, that's the one saying that all of the commentaries and all of the theologians just kind of scratch their head at and keep going. And actually what you see is the humanity of the Lord where he is, take, okay, you're going to take care of mom, mom, you're taking care of here. But then as who he is in God, Mary, here's Israel, John represents the little flock, little flock, take care of the nation, the nation is to take care of the little flock. And there's a great picture there, um, but not Mark. Mark doesn't have any of that. Mark's straight to the point, and he keeps it that way. Um, last time, I know that we, verse 33, and when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So he, he, so we've had three hours, 9 a.m. to noon, 
Now, so those first three hours, we, we saw the suffering where the Lord is suffering at the hands of man, the persecution of Israel, the nation, uh, and then the Gentiles have at him. And they're persecuting him. He's suffering at the hands of man because he's doing the will of the Father. And, and that's what he's doing. The sixth hour now, so now we're at noon, darkness. So now from noon to three. So you've got this breakup of time here. And now we have darkness. And, and the thing about the darkness in Scripture is it's an indication of the judgment of God. Uh, the uh, if you hold on here and come over to First John one, it's the issue of the absence of John. First John one and verse five. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So darkness, God withdrawing himself from the scene. And the, the biggest picture we see that is in Genesis 1. 1, 1, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. But then in chapter, or I'm sorry, in verse 2, now there's darkness upon the face of the deep. The earth is without form and void. So something has happened in creation that caused him to move away from it, to move out of it, judge it, judgment. Then in Genesis 1, verse 3, as God now is going to go back into creation, the first thing he does is says, let there be light, and he's back into it. And so I know we looked at that last time, Genesis 15. He puts Abraham into a sleep where he's going to confirm the covenant with Abraham. And, and it's a wonderful picture that indicates to you that the Abrahamic covenant was was not made with Abraham. It's made by God and allowing Abraham to partake in it. It's God's covenant. He said, put, he put Abraham to sleep. Abraham played no role in the confirmation of it, yet he saw his seed going to go down into Egypt, which is the picture, and there would be a great horror of darkness. And Abraham literally goes down and he sees what his what his seed, what his people are going to partake and be a part of uh, when they're taken away and carried away into satanic captivity, i.e. Egypt, and into the world. Then we looked over at Exodus 10, where Moses is dealing with Pharaoh in verse 21, and, uh, but that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even darkness which may be felt. And really, if you come over to Jude 13, that's the, a complete blackout. Uh, in Jude, verse 13, uh, as Jude is describing here the people uh, of the tribulation, during the tribulation, he says, Raging waves of sea, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. That, that blackness of darkness, not only is it just dark darkness that can be felt, there's then a blackness of it. It's kind of like that thing in Acts 22 when Paul stands to speak and they get silent, and then he speaks in the Hebrew tongue, and they become more silent. How can So this silence wasn't enough, now it's more silent. Well, it's a complete blackout, but now it's even 
it's a darkness that can be felt, but now it's a blackness of darkness. And that, that issue, again, for me, it, it's in the basement. <laughs> it, when we're living in Chicago, have a base, we have basements. You go down, you turn the lights out, and you can't see your face, and the hand in front of your face. A complete blackness, complete blackout. And really, that's what's, uh, come back to Mark 15 if you left it. That's where we were kind of last time in that issue of there's no light at all now. Uh, the, the noonday sun is blackened out. There's a physical black darkness, but there's also a spiritual darkness. And it's a great picture of what's happening here at Calvary. There's no light at all. The darkness covered, uh, if, if you look over at Luke, um, oh, I think it's 23, Luke 23, Luke 23, 44, and it was about the sixth hour, and there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour, and the sun was darkened. So there's a physical, complete blackness, dark. It's covered at all. And really, in the darkness, what you see, the, the, really, the big picture here is there is, the Lord is disoriented to time. And that's going to be critically important as we go through here. He, we usually can tell what time it is by the sun, where it's at, where it's sitting. You know, you know when it rises and comes right up over, that, over the superstitions and it shines. And then you can just, well, not in blackness, not in the darkness. Jesus Christ is on the cross and there's a no ability to tell how long this has been going on or how long will it continue. I, I sit here and I'm studying and the light hits and then it's here and then it's over here. And I'm like, all right, it's time to go home. <laughs> Okay, it's 2 o'clock, 2-ish, get home before the traffic. Then I get on the freeway, and guess what there is? Traffic. You know, it's like, all you people go home. Go back to wherever you came from, you know. I've been here over, well, just on 30 years, and it's like, go home. Everybody go back to where you came from, you know, and that includes me, I guess. I don't know. But, uh, the, but you can tell. The Lord can't tell that. There's no way for him to understand how long this is going to transpire. There's no ability to perceive time. So you have, and by the way, in the darkness, there's loneliness. There's isolation. And there's a sense of no end. It's going to go on and on. There's a hopelessness about it. When we were hiking the canyon, we all had our headlamps on. I turned mine off. And uh, I could still kind of see, but I couldn't see clear enough. And then we all turned them off, and it was just still of the morning, dead black. It's like, ooh, okay, quick, turn it back on. We turned it back on, and the mice ran away from our feet. I was like, whoa, okay, woohoo, you know, and off you go. So time, all of that ability to look at time is gone. So what you have here is you have the eternal Son of God. As he hangs on the cross, he's taking the eternal wrath of God as it's being poured out against man's sin. And there's an eternity to There's an eternal flavor to it. Uh, c- come back there. You were in Luke 23. Look at Luke 22. 
So this issue of the darkness, and again, I know last time we said some, I know we read this passage, but just again to get it into our thinking, Luke 22. So there's more to the darkness than just the physical lights went out, yes, but there's also a spiritual darkness, and that's what's going to happen with the, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? There's the spiritual battle, that is taking place between Satan and the power of darkness, the rulers of darkness, and here against the Lord Jesus Christ and the kingdom of his dear, of, of his dear son, Colossians 1. So you've got this battle that's going to rage in the spiritual realm. Now, in Luke 22, we're in the garden, verse, 40, uh, verse 49. When they which were about him saw what would follow, they said unto him, Lord, shall we smite with the sword? And one of them smote the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Now, we know that was Peter and Malchus, and we, got, we understand that. So we're in the garden. Then Jesus said unto the chief priests and captains of the temple and the elders which were come to him, Be ye come out as against a thief with swords and staves. When I was daily with you in the temple, ye stretched forth no hands against me. Now, that's telling because they could have easily picked him up at any time. The reason they don't is they're afraid of who? The people. Because he's been doing miracles. He's got fame and popularity. If they'd have come into the temple and took him, they'd have had a riot on their hands. So they got to wait for the dark of night over here in the garden. And then he says, but this is your hour and the power of darkness, the, the darkness that held the leadership of Israel captive, the darkness of that vain religious system, that, dark, that, that horror of spiritual darkness that has them gripped. And that's why in, in chapter 23, where we just read a minute ago, Verse 44, and it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour, and the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. You see the and the sun? There's the physical darkness, but there's also a what? A spiritual darkness. There's two kind of darknesses here. And there's a the real, I mean, the physical is real, and it impacts you. You know, we were coming home couple Tucson meeting a couple months ago and the storm was raging down in the Tucson area and all you could see was the lightning you couldn't see the stars you couldn't see the moon and it was dark until the lightning kicked in and light up the sky but you know what happens is is you, you get a little eerie out there when there's no you know semis blowing by you at 80 miles an hour or whatever it's like whoa but then and again so the physical is real it impacts you but the spiritual darkness of unbelief, that, that's what held the nation of Israel. And it covered the land as well. And it's, it's, that, uh, it, it's there in that spiritual darkness where, where the Lord is contending with the adversary for the souls of humanity. So the darkness, the spiritual, the adversary's design... <laughs> His design is to destroy the claim of the Lord Jesus Christ. He tried it in the temptation. It didn't work. 
The temptation there in Luke 4, Matthew 4, was designed for the Lord to do something out of order. Not, not, not that the Lord couldn't make the bread and eat and all that, but it wasn't time for him to do it. So if I can get him to do this out of order, when, when he talks about, you know, the angels won't let you dash your foot against the stone, that's legitimate. It's just not the timing. If I can get him to do it out of order, then he's, his claim is uh, voided. So there's this uh, battle that's raging between the adversary. Come back to Genesis 3. And between the adversary and, uh, and the Messiah. And, if, and if, he, if the adversary, he's got Israel uh, all messed up, so they're no longer usable by God to, to do. That's why the Lord's there calling out that little flock, that believing remnant. But if he can get the, the, the one that makes the claim to be Messiah, Jehovah, if he can get him to mess up, then he's won the day. So what we're going to see here at Calvary is the culmination of Genesis 3.15. In Genesis 3, obviously, we, we know Eve, Adam and Eve fall. Then, and, and then the Lord looks down and says, what, what happened? And the de- the Eve says, well, the devil made me do it. And Adam says, the woman made me do it. You know, that shift the blame. It's instilled now in humanity for, for, for decades and generations. And then the Lord looks at Satan, and he says there in verse 15, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, it, the, woman's seed, the seed of the woman, shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Well, if, if you bruise the head of the serpent, you killed him, you crushed him, okay? But the serpent's going to do what? Bruise his heel. There is gonna be a, there's going to be a conflict, and it starts right here. That's why you see Satan attack the seed line, the seed of the woman, resulting with Noah and the flood. Over there in Noah, if you come over to, to uh, chapter 6, that's why you read all of this, uh, Noah, uh, Noah 6, Genesis 6, verse 8, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. When he says there, and the generation... It, it's more than, than 40 years or lifetime, okay? It's generate, generations. What's, when he says that he was perfect in his generations, in other words, he, his genealogy, his generating was not polluted with the, with the sons of God, verse 2, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men and they were fair and he took them wives and so forth. Noah was Noah's three boys and wives and family, they were pure, they were of a pure blood, if you will. Okay, they weren't polluted. So that word generation doesn't always mean he remember um, John calls the leaders, oh ye generations of vipers. He's not saying you guys are just, you know, you're aged up enough to be vipers. 
You're being generated. You're of your father, the devil. There's a spiritual issue here. And Satan moves his attack against Noah. So it results in the flood. Then the seed of the woman moves to who? The seed of Abraham, the seed of Isaac, the seed of Jacob. So then what does the adversary do? He moves his focus onto the seed. Abraham had another kid, remember? Ishmael. How's that working? Not so good. Then Isaac has to, and there's this seed, and then he moves against Israel specifically, and the conflict, the seed line, it's moved all the way down through from the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, into the nation. And Satan's goal is to disqualify anyone from taking the place of being the king, the Messiah, the Redeemer, any of that. He's going to disqualify all of that. So then how to, by the way, that's why the satanic possession, possession, the demon possession in the land, it was to pollute the nation. That's all it was. That's why those guys, the legion guys would say, don't kick us out of the land. Throw us in the swine, throw us in the water. We don't, don't kick us out of the, why? They're polluting the land. That, so there's some things that are happening here that come back to Mark 15. And by the way, obviously Satan doesn't understand uh, some things about the battle because if he had known, Paul tells us, he would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So there's some information that Paul then develops or Paul then reveals. Uh, that's uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, verse 8. Verse 7, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew. Knew what? The hidden wisdom of God, which God ordained before the world unto who? Our glory. Had Satan known that information, he would have never, the verse says, for had they known it, and that's the hidden wisdom that was ordained before the world unto our glory, had they known that, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. I didn't say it. The verse says it, 1 Corinthians 2, 7 and 8. So what that tells me is there's some things that are happening in the bat that are about the battle that even Satan didn't understand. It was hidden from him. And it was this hidden wisdom concerning the ultimate, the full, the deep, the rich, accomplishment and achievement of the cross work of Calvary. Prophecy has a very limited view of the cross. Focuses right here with Israel and her Messiah. Her, and Paul comes in and says, yes, that is true, but so thou is all of this, and he widens that out. They focus in right here. That's what Satan knew. Satan knew the things revealed by God to the nation of Israel that he knew, boom, and now Paul comes in and says, yeah, but there's all this other two to it now. Where now it's, there's one man, there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Israel's out of the question. And that's, again, Satan, come, now come with me to Isaiah 49. So when you think about, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And what's happening in the darkness Physically, yes. Can't tell how long it's going on. Feels like an eternity. Well, here's the eternal son going through and paying for the eternal 
sin of man, the second death revelation calls it. But yet spiritually, there's a battle taking place. And Satan comes in and he's going to say something here in Isaiah 49 prophetically that is just shocking. He's going to say, I hold Israel. And you, there's nothing you can do about it. And Christ comes along and says, oh, yes, there is. <laughs> you want to make a bet? Watch me. Satan goes, you can't. They're lawfully mine. And Satan, hey, that's okay. I'm, and Christ comes in and says, yep, I'm going to. And there's, there's this back and forth. And literally, through the earthly ministry of the Lord, you have him poking Satan and Satan poking back and back. To the, and, and literally you have it all through history of Israel's history to the point that when Satan goes into Judas to get the job done because nobody's getting it done, so I'm going to go do it. My, Satan is literally at a bloodthirst lust. He just, it's enough's enough. I'm going to nail it. I'm going to get it over with. And just as Cain did with Abel, that picture we see there, here now is Satan. And in Isaiah 49, you see that prophetically. Isaiah 49, if you look at verse 24. Now, the context of Isaiah 49 is Israel, uh, it, it's, it's about the, 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 the kingdom, the Messiah's coming. He's going to regather Israel. He's going to make Israel, uh, re, he's going to restore Israel. She's going to be the head over all the, the people. And in verse 24, there's an objection raised on legal grounds. Shall the prey, that's Israel, be taken from the mighty? That's the adversary. That's Satan. Or the lawful captive delivered. So Satan raises an objection here and says, wait a minute. I pursued her, the prey. I captured her. I am the mighty one. I'm the strong man. Remember in, Matthew, in, the, in, in the Gospels, he'll say, you can be delivered from the strong man. A stronger than he has to come. Here he comes. He's, I'm, they are lawfully captive. They, I took them captive. They broke your law, and they rightfully belong to me. And he's got a point. And he says, you know what? I have a right to them. You do not because they broke the law. And if you come in and you take them away from me, then you're breaking your own rule, your own law. He thinks he's got the Lord over a barrel. Now hold on to Isaiah and come over to Jeremiah 31. And just watch this play out in the prophetic scriptures here. Because this is what's, this, this battle that's raging here, it's coming to a, a, a climactic point. Jeremiah uh, 31, uh, verse 1, at the same time. So we've got to figure what that is. So go back up into 30, chapter 30, start there at verse 22. And ye shall be my people, and I will be your God. So God's talking to Israel. Behold, the whirlwind of the Lord goeth forth with fury, a continuing whirlwind. It shall fall with pain upon the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord shall not return until he have done it, until 
he have performed the intents of his heart. In the latter days ye shall consider it. So the and verse 31.1, at the same time, what time? The latter days. You see, this is a prophetic picture out to the second coming, 70th week, latter days. Okay? What's God going to, saith the Lord, will I be the God of all the families of Israel and they shall be my people? What's, what's God saying? I'm going I'm to come back and I'm going to make them mine again. They belong to me. Verse 2. Thus saith the Lord, the people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness. By the way, that's not the gospel of grace. That's not the dispensation. Please don't always read dispensation of grace when you read grace. God is a gracious God. That's one of his attributes. Hosea chapter 2, Revelation 12, the tables prepared, Revelation 12, the tables prepared for them in the wilderness, and it's called a table of grace. it's a, it's a provision. It isn't the dispensation of grace. But that's why Paul uses that word dispensation, to draw your attention not to this, but to something new. Verse 3, the Lord hath appeared. I'm sorry, he, uh, verse uh, 2, even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest. The rest there, that's the kingdom rest. Verse 4, again, I, uh, I'm sorry, verse 3, The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. And again, I will build thee, and thou shalt be built. O virgin of Israel, thou shalt again be adorned with thy tabrets, and shalt go forth in the dances of them that make merry. And you've got this great, I'm going to restore you. I'm going to come in, and I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to avenge you. So not enough to deliver from the enemy, because if you don't wipe out the enemy, what can the enemy do? Come back at you. That's why he told Moses, he told Joshua, he says, when you guys go in there, you wipe them out, you burn it all down, even the hoof off that cow, you burn it all. Don't keep any of, because if you keep the goodly things, which is what they did after Joshua, then guess what's going to happen? Trouble. I'm going to deliver you, I'm going to wipe them out, I'm going to deliver you from them, and then I'm going to avenge, I'm going to wipe them off the planet. Drop down to verse 8. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the coast of the earth, and with them the blind and the lame, the women with children, I'm sorry, with child, and her that travaileth with child together. A great company shall return thither. They shall come with Weeping and with supplications, will I lead them? I will cause them to walk by the rivers of water. There's Psalms 23. In a straight way, wherein they shall not stumble. For I am the father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O ye nations. Hey, Gentiles, listen up. And declare it in the isles afar off, and say, He that scattereth Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd doth his flock. For the Lord hath redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of him that was stronger than he. And there it is. What is the Lord going to do? He's going to redeem them from the one who just objected, Isaiah 49. Said, Hang on a minute. I took them. They're lawfully mine. I'm the mighty one. 
They belong to me. I have them. You can't have them. And God says, I'm going to go and do it anyway. Now, by the way, if you drop down to verse 31, here's how he does it. I, uh, Jeremiah 31, 31. What does he do? I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah and with the church, the body of Christ. Nope. This ain't you. Sorry. <laughs> it's with who? It's with Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land. That old covenant didn't get the job done. The, law, the lawful captive, the law, no way. Not, that old put them in bondage. This new is going to set them free. So when you come back to Isaiah 49, you see the, the contest. Christ says, I'm going to redeem them. Satan says, no, you can't. They belong to me. Your law condemned them, and your law says that they belong to me. And if you break the law, you're, you then belong to me. And the Lord says, no, I'm going to do it anyway. And that just spins him up. That just makes Satan even matter and matter. So back in Isaiah 49, what does he say? He says, hey, how can the Lord do that? He's got a new covenant with He's got a new agreement with them. But what is he going to do? Verse 25, uh, Isaiah 49, 20, uh, 25. But thus saith the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken away, and the prey of the terrible shall be delivered. How can that be? How can he do that? For I will contend with him that contendeth with thee, and I will save thy children. He says, I'm going to come in there, and I'm going to defeat the mighty one. I'm going to defeat the adversary. Satan says, you can't do it. The law will not allow you to do it. It's mine, legal grounds. Verse 26, and I will feed them that oppress thee with their own flesh, and they shall be drunken with their own blood as with sweet wine, and all flesh shall know that I am thy Savior and thy Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Three of the five titles that the Lord, I am thy Redeemer. I'm going to pay your debt. What does the law require? A payment. I'm going to pay it. I'm going to deliver you. I'm your Savior. I'm going to get you out of, I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to say, rescue you from the hand of the mighty, the mighty one. The, I'm going to avenge him. I'm going to destroy him. I'm going to wipe him out, the mighty one of Jacob. I'm going to come in. Not only am I going to pay your debt, your sin debt, I'm going to deliver you, and I'm going to avenge you in your mind. And that's how we, I will defeat the adversary, and then I'm going to destroy him. I'm going to wipe him out. 50 verse 1, thus saith the Lord, where is the bill of your mother's divorcement whom I have put away? Uh-oh, now we're in trouble. He tells Moses, write him a bill of divorcement. Why? Because Israel is now in their sin. They've gone off worshiping Baal, worshiping other gods. He says, I was a husband to you, and then you went a-whoring after other gods. Moses, write him a bill of divorcement. Whew. You see, they're in trouble here. 
Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities have you sold yourselves, and for your transgressions is your mother put away. See, the problem in Israel was their, their iniquity. Now, I'll just remind you, that word iniquity is associated with the satanic policy of evil. It is sin, but it's a sin specific of belonging to Satan and the adversary. Why did their, behold, for your iniquities have ye sold yourselves? What did they do? They went after other gods. They broke the first two commandments. They, they, they did it. He didn't do it. They did it. Verse 3. I clothe the heavens with blackness, and I make sackcloth their covering. Now we're in Mark 15, in the darkness. The Lord God, here's the Father. By the way, you see that capital L, then lowercase o-r-d, and then capital g-o-d? That's God the Father, Jehovah the Father. Now watch what the Father is going to do here. Here's what, here's what the Here's what the Father is going to do or has done. He has given me, that's the Son, the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. He wakeneth morning by morning. He wakeneth my ear to hear as the learned. When the Lord goes into the garden and is praying, and he's he'll, in Luke 6, we're not there yet. We'll get there, uh, hopefully Sunday night. Luke 6, he goes in and he spends a whole night in prayer with the Father. Then he comes down. The Lord God hath opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. Now here's Calvary, the cross, the conflict. For the Lord God will help me, therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. This is the Son speaking here. Now watch verse 8. For he is near that justifieth me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. I am going to contend with the one, Isaiah 49, 24, who holds you in captivity. The conflict with Satan between Satan and the Lord over who is going to own God's people. Who is, who is and Jesus Christ says, I'm going to win. I'm going to do it. He doesn't explain how here, see. He's going to do it. That's going to come a little later. Come over to Colossians chapter 2. He, he just says he's going to do it. He do, in Isaiah, he doesn't say how. Here's where you need Paul. This is why you can't, keep, you can't cut Paul out of your scriptures. The spiritual darkness at the cross, there's a conflict that's raging between Satan and the Lord, between the two kingdoms, the two authorities. Personally, personal, mono to mono, man to man, they're going at it over who's going to own God's people. Satan says, I own them. The, the son says, nah, I don't think so. I'm going to do this. Now look at Colossians 2 and watch Paul, verse 14. Watch Paul explain it. Here's the explanation of how. 
I've said it over and over and over again. The events of Calvary are talked about from Genesis 3 on. But what it means isn't revealed until you come to the Apostle Paul. He takes us and he reveals the deeper meaning, the fuller. He fills in. The, you know, when Isaiah wrote that, you know, you know what he asked? How in the world are you going to defeat him? You know he asked that. By the way, you know how you asked? First Peter tells you that they asked those questions. <laughs> but the Holy Spirit says, it's not for you to know, just write it down. That's coming later. <laughs> okay? By the way, Hebrews answers that for Israel. Colossians 2, verse 14. Here's the Lord. Blotting out the handwriting of an ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. He takes the law out of the way. How? He nailed it to the cross. What did that do to the lawful captive? It set them free. It redeemed them. The law requires perfect righteousness, and here's how you're going to get there, and, do it. and yet man has failed and failed and failed. But he takes the law the very thing that held Israel captive. Now, it held them captive because of their iniquity, because of their sin. He came in and paid the debt that was owed. He took it out of the way. He paid it off. He sends it away. Verse 15, And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a fair show of them openly, triumphing over them, in it, in the cross, spoiled. Those are, that's terms of war. He defeated the adversary. He took away the very thing that the adversary was holding on to. And count. he was, here's what held Israel captive. And by the way, here's what held mankind captive. Romans 3, there in verse 19, where it talks there about the, to those that were under the law, and it made the whole world guilty. See, the law, was, the law of God was righteous. It was a righteous, um, Romans 3.19, now we know that whatsoever things are written, uh, I'm sorry, now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. The law made the world guilty. And what does Satan hold? The very thing that he held on to in order to hold not only Israel but all of mankind captive, the Lord went over there and took it away from him and defeated him. He publicly, open, openly triumphing over, he op public humiliation. So at the, on the cross, now the folks sitting there watching, they don't see this. This is a spiritual battle. They just see the lights went out. What in the world's going on? Why is there darkness? You know, what's you know they don't, and they, the reason they don't see it, by the way, is their unbelief. They don't, they went and go get a light. Hey, that's Elijah. He's calling for Elijah. Eli, Eli. That's Elijah. See, they don't even understand what he said when he said, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? They're over here, well, let's keep him awake. Let's get him all, you know, juiced up again so maybe Elijah will come and rescue him. Then complete and total unbelief. But yet, public humiliation. And again, I, I, 
1 Corinthians 2, he publicly humiliated the adversary at the cross. And he does it by, su by suffering. Again, we've already looked at all of that, by the suffering that we're reading about. But also, because of that wonderful 1 Corinthians 2, 7, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. There, the other reason why there's that public humiliation is Satan didn't know the hidden wisdom. Had Satan known, and he, he, he didn't, so then what did he go do? He went and did the dirty deeds that needed to be done to do what? To kill the Messiah. And the Lord just, God just says, you did the very thing that's now you're undoing, and uh, you lose, and I win. So all of that spiritual, uh, come back to Isaiah 53. All of that is going on. All that spiritual conflict is right here. In Mark 15, 33 and 34, Isaiah 53. And again, that is why Mark just cuts right through everything. Isaiah 53 and verse 10. Now, again, this is all about Israel. Isaiah 53, 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. So here's Jehovah Father going to bruise his son. He hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. There it is. What did the, the climax of the battle? God the Father, he's going to bring God the Son and he's going to bruise him. What did that thing say in Genesis 3? You're going to bruise his heel? He's going to crush your head, but he's going to bruise, okay? Isaiah 53.10, or Genesis 3.15, this is the one I just quoted. Verse 11, 50, Isaiah 53.11, he shall see the travail of his soul, there's Psalms 22, and shall be satisfied. The father is going to see the travail of the son's soul, there's Romans 3.25, in the propitiation, the faith of the Father and the blood, the shed blood of the Son. Verse, verse 12, Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. And he's numbered, and, and he was numbered with the transgressions, and he bare the sin of many. Paul tells us, not only did he do that, but he also bears the sin of all now. The many is now all and made intercession for the transgression. He made, he made his, son, his soul an offering for sin. He poured out his soul. So you got a soul sacrifice being made here for, by the Lord for the souls of man. Now come back to Mark 15. And watch it happen here in verse 34. So in that dark, those three hours of darkness, there is just a tremendous spiritual battle. Uh, we've studied it here in the past. Uh, I know on YouTube, I think the playlist is called The Battle on the Cross. 
and we've, and we've walked down through a lot of this over time different ways. But watch it happen here in verse 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why? That is a cry of humanity. Why? That is, a cr- that is the, the cry of loneliness. That's a cry of travail and pain and agony. Why does good, bad things happen to good people? You hear that all the time. One of the mechanisms of man to deny God is if he was a loving God, then all this bad wouldn't happen. See? Why? Well, he's numbered with the transgressors, so what's he going to cry? Why? That's what man's crying. Christ comes in. He's a man of sorrow, acquainted with, de- uh, with grief. Not death, with grief. So there's more than just the loneliness here. Then he says, my God, my God. He doesn't say my father. Earlier he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, a term, a, a, a term of a relationship, an endearment. But my God, my God, there's a title of position. So here's a positional issue that's got to be dealt with. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken? Now, the Lord has been forsaken all of his life, okay? His family, they forsook him for a little bit. The disciples, they forsake The apostles forsake him. But the father never forsook the son. He was always there until right here at this moment. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And the answer is found in Psalms 22. So run back to Psalms 22. Psalms 22. Again, you have to remember what's going on here. There's, in, 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 in the thinking, in the mind, and in the soul of the Lord, there's more going on here than just him hanging there going, do, 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 okay, you know, boom, and said this and said that. There's, there's a great insight into his thinking. He never bows his head until he gives up the ghost. He's always erect. He's always aware. He refuses the, the, the morphine drip early, the, the, the cocktail early. Then at the end, he says, I thirst, and that's to get him to give it to him so he can fulfill Psalm 69, get that done. So then he says, I thirst, and then they give him the vinegar and, the gall, and everything, and then he is dead. And then he's dead before they break his legs. Why? Because the scripture says no bones will be broken and so forth, and they just come up and do. So he's, there's a lot going on, Isaiah 51, Isaiah 53, Psalms 22 here in his mind, verse 1. My, why does he say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? The why, the cry of why. Verse 2, oh my God, I cry in the daytime. There's the three hours of the light. But thou hearest not. And in the night season, Psalms 22, 2. There's the darkness, there's the night, the three hours of darkness, and am not silent. But thou art, what? Holy. O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. A holy God can't look upon what? Sin. Because what's he about to say, verse 6? 
but I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. In this moment, verse 3, verse 1, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In those dark hours, why has he forsaken him? Because he was made to be sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5. This is right at that moment. Uh, Galatians 3 and verse 13. Hold on to Psalms there. He says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangs. That word made, fantastic word. Made. Something that of its, in, here's its original intent, and it's made into something that's opposite of that original intent. He was made to be sin. He wasn't sin. He's made into it and so that we can be what? Made righteous. We weren't righteous, and now we're made righteous. Opposite of each other. Made. He comes in. He took the curse of the law. He was made that curse. And, and, and that's what's happening in Psalms 22. He said, and that's what's happening in Mark 15. Now, come over to... Uh, Romans 3. We'll just do this. Romans 3. Paul says it this way. Romans 3, verse 24. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I love that word, freely. What a grace word. You know, He's freely given us all things. Free. It's, it's a free gift principle. Then verse 25. Whom God, and this is the Father, hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood. Think about that. Set forth. He didn't keep Him over here behind the curtain. He put Him out on public display. He takes Him and He puts Him out there in the front of everything, of everyone. The propitiation, that full satisfying payment through faith in His blood. God the Father by the way, uh, to declare his righteousness for the remissions of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time his righteousness. So the end of verse 25 is the time past issue. Verse 26 is right now. Therefore, Verse 28, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. That's the mandate from Genesis to Revelation. It's always faith. So the Lord, the Father looks over there at the past and knows that Calvary's coming, knows that his son will go and die, knows that he will get, and he is able to forgive the forbearance based upon the future shed blood, and he does that. And then Paul says to declare it this time, that event now impacts everybody. And it's all based on the satisfying payment that Christ made. So when you come back to Mark 15, again, that's where we're at here. Psalms 22, Mark 15, a transaction is taking place where all sin is being placed on him. And it, it's more than a, than a uh, substitution. It, he's a sacrifice. To, the thing about him being our substitute, that's religion. That's religious talk. He's a sacrifice. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? 
Well, why? Psalms 22.3, he's what? He's holy. What's going on with, what's happening there? Christ has become that payment for sin, and guess what? He can't look upon him. The Father isn't going to take him. The Father isn't going to go help him. The Father can't. Why? Because he has been made sin. Did I tell you go back to Psalms 22, or did I say Mark 15? Go back to Psalms 22. Psalms 22. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The father didn't forsake him. The father couldn't help him because he was made sin. Verse 5. They cried unto thee. I I love verse 4. Our fathers trusted in thee. They trusted and thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee and were delivered. They trusted in thee and were not confounded. But I am a worm. He says, wait wait a minute here. Let's reason this out. You did it for these guys, but you won't do it for me. Why? Verse 6, I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. Look at that. I'm a worm and no man. Come over to, you got to get two passages. going to get Isaiah 66, but Mark 9 first. That issue about a worm, I'm a worm and no man. There's a profound truth in that on the cross. By the way, this is not when he's in the grave. He's on the cross. When he gives up the ghost and dies, you remember what he says? It is finished. Theology says he paid for everything in the grave. Nope. He paid for everything where? In the three hours of darkness. Theology says he goes down here and Scripture says, no, he does it right there. Mark 9. In Mark 9, the Lord's going to warn Israel about the future judgment out in the kingdom. Verse 43. And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off, for it is better for thee to enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thy eye offend thee, pluck it out, It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. Now, by the way, verse 49, for every one shall be salted with fire and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. And that's the kind of fire. This is a preserving fire, not a destruction fire. Okay? But catch what's happening there. He uses the word hell three times. He uses that word fire six times, okay? So there's some things going, there's a fire that won't die. (laughs) There's going to be a situation where the souls of man is going to a condition, by the way, this is the lake of fire, where they're not going to be destroyed. They're going to be salted. They're going to be protected. And there's going to, and that, and he uses that term worm in relationship to salt. I'm sorry, to their soul, the souls of men. Now, hold on to Mark and run over to Isaiah 66 because this is where the Lord is quoting. By the way, in Mark 9 there, 
He talks about entering into life maim. That's eternal life. Because in verse 47, he doesn't use life. He says, enter into the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God equals what? Eternal life in their thinking. So you've got a great picture being painted here of the future and how they need to be careful. Isaiah 66, verse 23. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith the Lord. So verse 22, for as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith the Lord. So out there in the millennial, out there in the future, all flesh, that's, all the believers are going to come up to Jerusalem worship, and when they're leaving, verse 24, and they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me. For their worm shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be at abhorring unto all flesh. There's a memorial set up outside of Jerusalem, south of the Dead Sea, Bozrah, Amia, Isaiah um, 34 talks about, he comes back in flaming fire in the second coming, and he literally opens up the shaft there. By the way, there are three shafts into hell, okay? Uh, you'll hear people use and say here, well, this hell is Gehenna, the garbage dump. And that's okay, but it's, not, it's more than a garbage dump. It's a special compartment it's going to be opened up. He's going to burn it away. It's there today. It's just covered up. He burns it away. By the way, the first one is in the Red Sea where Pharaoh and them crossed and were destroyed. The other one is over in the river Euphrates in Babylon, and that one's a demonic zoo. You go read about that, the zoo animal. You know, they, it's, anyway, all of it is a memorial of here's what sin got you. Remember that. Here's what sin but when they come out there and they see that memorial, notice what he how for their worm shall not die. There is a degenerative, a de degeneration nature, a degenerative nature process on the souls of men that sin causes. And it takes a soul of a man and it brings it all the way down into a red-hot maggot, maggots, worms. Now, come back to Mark and get Mark 8, and just, you got to, so when God, when the Son says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why? Because he's been made sin, and a holy God can't look on sin. He won't acknowledge him. He's got to pay that debt. Look at Mark 8. And then we're going to go to Luke 9, but Mark 8. Mark 8 and verse 36. Mark 8, 36. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his soul? You see that? Now compare that with the comparative Luke 9, verse 25. Now you've got to think about this. Get out, get out of the theology books. Look at Luke 9, verse 25. For what is a man's advantage if he gain the whole world and lose 
himself or be cast away. So for someone to lose their own soul is for them to lose what? Himself. They're losing their personal identity. Your soul is, who, is the real you. It's who you are. This body is just, is just a vehicle toting you around. And you're going to lose who you are. So what sin does is it robs people of who they are. And the consequence of sin is that destruction of your own idea, identity. And the ultimate uh, degenerative nature of sin, the ultimate degradation of sin is that worm. You're, you're just, you don't have any identity. It's gone. The lost literally lose who they are. They lose their identity. And they're placed, that places them into a position of a valueless existence. They're, van, they're just a pile of worms. Maggots on a bot, on a carcass. That's what they are. That's the second death. Revelation 21.8, the lake of fire, the second death. So when the Lord says, I am a worm and not a man, the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross in those three hours of darkness in that conflict is literally suffering in his soul the transformation of that second death for all of mankind. And while the, the lost eternally lo lose everything, the Lord Jesus Christ suffered the same. That's why it's darkness. Because if for him it's going to seem to go on and on and on forever. No perspective, no way of seeing an end. He makes the sacrifice. He makes the payment. And he did it. And, and again, he does it. Paul says now it's for everybody. But man, that darkness, he didn't know when it was going to end. He just knew he was in it. And he makes that cry of why, my God, my God, where are you? Where did you go? So the reason, again, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For he hath made him, he, the Father, made him, the Son, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So when you come back to Mark 15, when he says, why? <laughs> why did you, where are you? Where did you go? Why did you forsake me? Psalms tells us why. Because he took on our sin nature. He took on our second death. And he stood there in, in place for humanity. So Mark 15, verse 34, he makes the cry. Now watch verse 35. And some of them that stood by, when they heard it, said, Behold, he calleth Elias. Again, Elijah. They took the Eloi Eloi and said, He's talking, he's calling Elijah. They didn't understand what he was going, what he said, what was going on. They didn't understand anything. They just know it's dark, and he's babbling on about Elijah. They're in utter blindness, darkness, dark blindness of unbelief. 
and they didn't understand it. That's why verse 36, and one ran and filled a sponge full of vinegar and put it on a reed and gave it him to drink, saying, let alone, let us see whether Elias will come to take him down. <laughs> let's, see, let's, let's just see if Elijah shows up and gets him. Again, complete, total blindness, darkness, spiritual darkness, unbelief. And that's where Israel is. That's where gen, the Gentile world, mankind is at. So when Christ suffers in his soul, the second de- our second death, again, he's not just a substitute. He is... He goes all the way through it. And not just a substitute, Paul, again, made. There's a, there's a he, he's, you and I are made righteous. We have, in, in who? In Christ. That identity in Christ. What was it? Made sin. Same thing. Same idea. Now his death, burial, and resurrection is what? Our death, burial, and resurrection. Those that believe it. So we'll pick up here. The time's way up. So just I, I want you to catch the Mark cuts right to the chase. Mark doesn't have all the fluff. Why? Because that's not the the issue. Is is in those three hours of darkness, he's made sin. He's being he is made into something that now the believing remnant, Israel, you and I, the Church, the Body of Christ, through the revelation given to Paul, will never have to experience. He's already done it for us. And because we're in him and the Father sees us in him, then guess what? Then we don't have to go through that. That makes Romans 5 where he says much more we're saved from the wrath to come. (laughs) Much more than just tribulation wrath. Man, it's also second death stuff. We're rescued from it. And that's because of these events right here. Okay? All right, Johnny Father, we thank you for the evening, Lord. We thank you for the word, for the look into it, for the moment in human history where the son took upon him, was numbered with the transgressors, and became the savior that we learn now through the revelation given to the apostle Paul of all them that believe. And we thank you for that, and we rejoice in it. And as we learn more and more about those details, that we just rejoice more and more in our Savior and His activity at Calvary. In your name we pray. Amen.